How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting here today, as always, with Dr. Michael Easley. How are you doing today, I'm Dad? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. We are listening for the next three weeks to a very smart guy named Carl <laughs> Truman, who we've had on the show once before, not too long ago. But Dad, tell us, why are we listening to these three lectures by Dr. Truman? So during our time in Northern Virginia, we became friends with Barbara and Spencer Brand. And Spencer is one of these guys that if Spencer sends me something, I stop and listen to it or read it because anyway, there's that connection. He's a bright guy. He thinks critically. And he sent me a CD by Carl Truman. And then it followed up with a series of other CDs. And I, I was captured by this guy who obviously teaches in colleges and seminaries. And so we did some homework on him, and, and he was kind enough to do an interview with us on In Context some time ago. And upon reflection, I thought, we should let our folks hear these messages. And they were originally given at the Blue Ridge Bible Conference, part of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, I believe. So anyway, I was so impressed by his thought process, his intelligence, obviously, his homework he's done. And I thought, you know, our In Context family needs to be exposed to Dr. Truman's work. Right. So we had Dr. Truman on our show in April of 2020. And starting today and then the following two weeks, we will be releasing three of his lectures, just like you said, from the Blue Ridge Bible Conference. And we were given permission by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and Dr. Truman himself to share these with our listeners. So let's join Dr. Truman as he speaks to the Blue Ridge Bible Conference. I want to speak really on on what I think is the broader background and context of the current sexual revolution which we are experiencing, which we are living through. That may come as a frustration to some of you that I'm not going to, to directly address really until perhaps... Uh, some point tomorrow directly address some of the, the sexual issues that are pressing in on us socially at this particular point in time. But I think uh, I want to do that. I want to do the, approach the subject the way I am because I think there is a, a tendency always in Christian circles to treat symptoms in isolation. Uh, what do I mean by that? I think there can be a tendency to zero in on the things uh, that are presenting themselves to us as problems in culture and society, and not to realize how deeply rooted those things are or where they come from. And that can lead to experiences of what I would describe as vertiginous confusion at times. One of the things that is most striking about the church's response to the recent sexual revolution, I think, has been the level of confusion at the speed at which it has taken place. Uh, Christians were still uh, debating uh, the issue or worrying about the issue of gay marriage 
uh, at the very point where transgenderism was carrying all before it. And I think it's been a shock to many Christians how uh, gay marriage now seems so passé uh, and so far in, in, in the distance as far as the sexual revolution goes because we're dealing with problems that, that make that look like a, uh, a relative sideshow, one might say. Uh, I remember in 2015, in the run-up to the Obergefell versus Hodges a gay marriage decision by the Supreme Court. I was asked by First Things magazine to be one of a, a group of people who wrote responses to, uh, to the Supreme Court judgment, but because the editor wanted to get the responses out on the very day of the judgment, he asked each of us to write two responses, uh, depending on which way Justice Anthony Kennedy decided to vote. And so I sent in my two responses, and the editor dropped me a note back and said, I noticed that... Uh, there is only one sentence different between your two submissions. And I said, sure, because I actually think the, the Supreme Court judgment, while it will have legal ramifications, will not change the fundamental direction of the culture to any significant degree, because the causes of the current issue are much more deep-seated than the specific uh, details of the case before the Supreme Court. What I want to do in these two uh, lectures is argue that sexuality and the issues surrounding sexuality in our current culture uh, are a function of the broader notion of how we understand ourselves to be human beings. I think when the ordinary man or woman in the street thinks that the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, is coherent, the question is, why do they think so? My grandfather died 25 years ago uh, this year and would have regarded that sentence as arrant nonsense and something to be laughed at. Yet I suspect if I wandered down a, a typical street in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh and knocked on a door and said that sentence to somebody today, they would probably feel that it made sense even if they didn't agree with what it was presenting. How has it come about that that is the case? That is a sentence, we might say, with huge assumptions, huge metaphysical assumptions behind it. And I suspect the answer uh, as to why most people find it meaningful is not that they have read the latest trendy philosophical treatments of the idea or have sat in a postgraduate seminar at an Ivy League university. The answer is that they have been taught to think that way intuitively by the way the world is at the moment. should also add another caveat at this point. I think there's another tendency in Christian circles which we must resist, and that's this. And that is to assume that when we blame something on sin, the task of explaining it is over. I teach history, and one of the things I say in my history classes is a general explanation or a universal explanation that explains everything in general actually explains nothing in particular. The example I use in class is typically the Twin Towers on 9-11. And I say to my students, uh, is the statement the Twin Towers fell down on 9-11 because of gravity true or false? Of course, the answer is true. The follow-up question is, does that actually tell me anything about what happened that day or why it happened? To which the answer is no, virtually nothing at all. Uh, 
So I'm going to work on the assumption that uh, much of the way we think about sexuality today is indeed the result of the fall and is sinful, but that's not going to be my interest. My interest is going to be in trying to offer some lines of explanation as to how our sinful tendency, our sinful way of thinking has taken on that specific shape, specific shape at this specific point in time. Essentially, I'm going to argue in these two lectures, two things I'm going to argue, that we live in an age where human authenticity, where we think that what it means to be human is found primarily in psychological states. Being human is what you feel now, which is a relatively recent innovation in the history of humankind, say the last three to four hundred years. I know that's older than your country, but for somebody from Europe, that's relatively recent. And I'm going to secondly argue that the world in which we live, and which would typically have provided a stable framework for knowing who we are, has been destabilized. We might say that that first point I made, the, the, the point about human authenticity being found in psychological states, emer- uh, points to what I call the emergence of plastic people. What do I mean by that? Peoples whose identity is not given to them, but is created by themselves. And secondly, this ter- the, the, term, uh, the, the idea of identity being uh, connected to the Uh, the unstable world in which we live, I would say, I will dub this, borrowing uh, a term used by sociologists, liquid modernity, where flux and change, not stability and continuity, is now normative. And I think that's a distinctive of the modern age, for reasons that I will argue tomorrow. And then finally, at the end of tomorrow's lecture, I want to offer some suggestions as to how the church might think of responding to these matters. But I'm going to inject a a, a word of sort of pessimism at this point. I do think that the situation is currently so bad and has such complicated origins that only local solutions are currently plausible. What do I mean by that? Congress isn't going to solve the problem. The problem is going to be solved in local churches and in local neighborhoods if it's going to be solved at all. We're not going to be able to vote for people who can fix this for us. We have to fix it ourselves in our own neighborhoods and our own churches. So then, my first topic this evening, uh, the first lecture. I want to look at how the way we think about ourselves as human beings has changed. And here I want to bring to your attention uh, uh, the taxonomy, the, the framework provided by a man called Philip Reef. Reef is a very interesting individual. He was a, a Jewish man. He was a professor of uh, sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And in 1966, he wrote a book which uh, is more prophetic than he could possibly have known when he wrote it. The book's title is The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And he looks in that book at the rise of the idea of personal psychological happiness as being the fundamental goal of human beings. Uh, He sees that as a major change in the way people think. There's a lovely line in it somewhere. Well, lovely from a pessimistic point of view. Uh, Lovely line in it where he says, uh, in times past, uh, people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to church to have their misery explained to them. And in that contrast, 
In that contrast, he sees the difference between the typical man or woman of the modern age and all of those who uh, predeceased us. And he offers a, a taxonomy, a framework for understanding the history of, of human beings in relation to how they think about themselves that is somewhat simplistic, but is nonetheless helpful. So I'm going to give you the simplistic taxonomy, and then I'm going to offer some reflections on it. His taxonomy is this, that human beings, human societies have passed through what he sees as essentially four phases. Political phase, a religious phase, an economic phase, and a psychological phase in which we now live. Uh, political man. Uh, Reef's ideal of the political man is really the sort of person you might have found in, in ancient Greece. Uh, Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, has this statement that man is a political animal. That has become a somewhat uh, misunderstood term in our current age. You know, when you say, oh, he's a political animal, typically you're thinking about somebody who uh, you know, is a news junkie, follows politi political stories all the time, is always interested in a political debate. Uh, what, what Aristotle means when he says man is a political animal is that man finds his being, his value, through his activity in the polis, the city, we might say, in public life. In fact, in Aristotle's thinking, the, opposition, the opposite of a political man is the idiot, because idiot means the private man, the man who likes to sit at home on his own and not be interfered with by other people. I would be an idiot, I think, in Aristotle's taxonomy. Uh, I love living in a house where nobody comes to visit by accident. My wife hates it. She loves people just calling around randomly. I hate that stuff. I hate that stuff. I want to be on my own and have at least 10 days warning before somebody knocks on my door, you know, to ask directions or something like that. I would be an idiot. But to go back to Aristotle's point, you think that in ancient Greece, the ideal man the person who had that sort of sense of worth was the person who was connected in public affairs in the city. So a man or a woman would think of their, their value in terms of how they engaged in their community. They engage, we might say, in public life, in community life. Reef sees uh, that, that stage in, in human uh, existence giving way to what he calls the religious phase. Think about the Middle Ages. Reef would say that's a religious phase. I think one of the greatest pieces of literature from the Middle Ages is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. If you've never read it, it's, it's actually quite a fun book. If you get a, a modern English translation, The Miller's Tale. Uh, I did English literature at school, and I went to an all-boys school, and uh, then we, we were told we've got to do Chaucer, and we all groaned, and then when we opened The Miller's Tale, it's got everything that a 15, 16-year-old boy could want. It's got tricks. Uh, it's got people, uh, what do you say here, breaking gas, I think would be the American phrase. Rather distasteful. But all of the kind of lavatorial stuff that a 15-year-old boy is interested in is in this Chaucer tale. But the overall shtick of the Canterbury Tales is that their story is told by a group of people on pilgrimage, making their way to the city of Canterbury to pay homage at the altar, at the, the shrine of St. Thomas Becket, a uh, Catholic martyr. And Chaucer's pilgrims are the epitome in some ways of, of what Reef is trying to get at, that, that people in the Middle Ages, 
Uh, the fulfilled life for them was one that involved them being in, uh, connected to religious activities, the festivals of the church, etc., etc. Reith then sees the, the religious phase giving way to a shorter phase, what he calls economic man. An economic man is, is the, the man or the woman who finds their sense of worth in their connection to the economic structure of society. Their work, we might say, is what gives them a sense of value. And then finally, Reef sees economic man in the 20th and now the 21st century as giving way to what he calls psychological man. And psychological man is kind of the end of the road. Psychological man is the man or woman who finds their sense of worth in their inner feelings. Now you might say that's very interesting, but, but what difference does that make? Uh, give, give me a practical example. Well, I'll use myself and my grandfather as an example at this point. I'm pretty sure that if my grandfather was here today, and my grandfather was a, he was a working class man, he left school at 13 or 14, and he worked in a, a factory until the age of 65 when he retired. He was a sheet metal worker. So he, he, he beat metal into shape for the car industry for over 50 years of his life. The kind of job that I would look on as being a bit of a drudge, I guess. I'm glad I don't have to do that. But I think if my grandfather was here today and I were to say to him, did you find your work satisfying? I think he'd answer in this way. I think his response would be yes, because it enabled me to put bread on the table and shoes on my children's feet. Yes, I got a tremendous amount of satisfaction from my work, because it enabled me to provide for my family. I suspect if you asked me that question, my instinctive response would be something like, yeah, I, I get a real buzz out of teaching. It, it gives me a real buzz to, to explain an idea to a group of students and to see a few light bulbs going on. That yes, there's a great sense of psychological satisfaction that I get from performing in front of a class. And that difference is the difference for Reef between economic man and psychological man. In a sense, it's a difference between all the other previous types of human beings and the one that exists in the present. Notice, my grandfather was an outwardly directed person. His satisfaction comes from outward things. His sense of identity comes from outward things. My sense of selfhood and identity comes from an inner feeling of psychological satisfaction. And that lies at the heart of what it is to be a person in the West today. That what counts above everything is that sense of psychological inner satisfaction. And the sexual revolution, I think, has to be set against the background of that. It's the specific form in which modern society has expressed itself as psychological men and psychological women. Now, I'd say as a historian, Reef's taxonomy, his framework is, it's too clear-cut. It's a bit simplistic. But the bottom line is this. When he describes psychological man in terms of the quest for inner psychological satisfaction as providing me with my sense of who I am, he's spot on. Maybe the origins of that are a little more complicated than he outlines. But basically, that is the dominant type of person that we have around today. 
Think about it, just to cut to some of the chase. Think about how we think of sexual activity today. What is the goal of sexual activity? Personal satisfaction. What's the underlying logic of no-fault divorce? Hey, if my wife no longer gives me the sexual and psychological satisfaction that I require, I can dissolve my marriage. It rests on a definition of marriage as, as what it does for me. How does it benefit me? Incidentally, that points to who really defined, redefined marriage in the United States of America. It was the governor of California in 1970. Later went on to be a very famous and well-respected conservative president of the United States. No-fault divorce, California, 1970, set the legal precedence that ultimately led to gay marriage. Think about it. Gay marriage, the redefining of marriage, is not that it ceases to be between a man and a woman, but that it ceases to be about lifelong companionship in sickness and in health, for richer and for poorer, until death us do part. Now, would allow, as the Westminster Confession does, certain uh, situations in which divorce is permissible. But that isn't what no-fault divorce teaches. You cease to be satisfied in your marriage, you can get out of it. That's not what the Bible teaches about marriage, and it's not what society has typically taught about marriage until fairly recently. It's a function of psychological man. Where does it come from? Well, this is where the story gets a bit depressing because uh, the psychological man hasn't simply emerged overnight. He's the culmination of cultural trends that have been going on for hundreds of years. One might think, for example, of the, uh, the other great Genevan thinker. If I said, who's the great Genevan thinker? Probably most of you would say John Calvin, I hope. Well, there's another a great Genevan thinker who's even more influential than John Calvin, Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the 18th century. And Rousseau comes to prominence because he's one of the first men who makes the powerful argument that it is society that screws people up. Left alone to our own devices, we would be authentic human beings. It's society that screws us up. It's society that messes up our psychology. So we move on in the 18th century. Uh, we, we can see this sort of thinking uh, permeating culture. My, one of my great loves in life uh, in terms of literature are the romantic poets. Uh, William Wordsworth, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Blake. It's not often appreciated how radical their poetry was. Prior to Wordsworth and Co., the game of poetry was to, to recount in many ways uh, the great epics of human existence. Think of Paradise Lost, the fall of the angels. It doesn't become any more epic than that. I'll be quoting a passage from that tomorrow. But William Wordsworth in 1801 writes this uh, about the po uh, point or purpose of poetry. The poet writes, he says, under one restriction only, that of the necessity of giving immediate pleasure to a human being possessed of that information which may ex be expected from him, not as a lawyer, physician, a mariner, an astronomer, or a natural philosopher, but as a man. The purpose of poetry is to give pleasure. He says this, it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, and that produced in the audience by the poet representing 
his own recollection of such. He goes on, the poet is the rock of defense of human nature, an upholder and preserver, carrying everywhere with him relationship and love, in spite of difference of soil and climate, of language and manners, of laws and customs, in spite of things silently gone out of mind and things violently destroyed. The poet binds together by passion and knowledge the vast empire of human society as it is spread over the whole earth and over all time. What is Wordsworth saying there? The most genuine thing about human beings are the raw passions that lurk beneath the surface. We're trained by society to be inauthentic. To be a true human being, we need to act out on our inner psychological passions. He will go on when he's criticised by a friend for writing a poem about a child. It's called, the poem has the rather uh, politically incorrect title of The Idiot Boy. I think today we'd say somebody with learning difficulties. But a friend of his finds it rather distasteful that he's written a book, uh, a poem about somebody with learning difficulties. And uh, Wordsworth responds to him by saying, you know, where do we find genuine human beings? Where do we find the best measure of what it means to be a genuine human being? I answer, from within, by stripping our own hearts naked and by looking out of ourselves towards men who lead the simplest lives most according to nature. Men who have never known false refinements, wayward and artificial desires, false criticisms, effeminate habits of thinking and feeling, or who, having known these things, have outgrown them. What is saying there? Where do you find the most genuine human being, the one who has not been shaped by society? How does that apply to the sexual revolution today? Well, think of uh, the typical testimonies that one finds when, say, a leading celebrity uh, leaves, uh, will leave his wife for another guy. Well, think of the sort of language that uh, Bruce Jenner used when he transitioned to being Caitlyn Jenner. It's fascinating that the language is often that of authenticity. I've been living a lie. Society has pressed me into its mold. So I was living a lie, and now that I've dumped my wife and taken up with this guy, I'm truly myself. Think of the assumptions that lie behind that. The idea is that our instincts inside are who we truly are, our psychological feelings are who we truly are, and not that which society has made us to be. And the fact that society buys that myth buys that idea is no more evident than in the typical reactions of the media to these things. Very often when a man leaves his wife for another guy, the focus is not on the woman who's been left behind. The focus is on the heroic guy who's had the courage to be himself at last. That tells you how deeply this kind of line of thinking now permeates our culture. Very infrequently, very infrequently is the wife of a celebrity who's come out and gay and dumped her, presented as a victim. Typically, the celebrity doing the dumping is presented as the victim of a society who made him marry her in the first place. I don't know how society makes people marry people. I was very happy and did it voluntarily. Nobody ever threatened me if I didn't marry somebody. But that's part and parcel of what is going on. And it's expressed rather beautifully in one of my 
favourite poems, poems by William Blake. It's from his little collection, The Songs of Innocence and Experience. And it captures beautifully the contrast that is being set up in modern thought between the authenticity of individual desire and the corrupting power of society, particularly, particularly the church. Listen to this. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. You get the picture. Uh, Blake is going back to a childhood haunt. He's going back to this Garden of Love where he used to just play very happily and innocently. And he gets there and there's a church built right in the middle. And then he describes this church. And the gates of this chapel were shut. And thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore. Guess the chapel and above the chapel is thou shalt not. That's what religion means for him. It's preventing him from playing innocently as he used to. It's preventing him from being himself. And then it concludes in this way. Notice the, the double rhyme of the last two lines that sort of punch, uh, provide the punch power of this. And I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. What you see at the beginning of the 19th century is the emergence of the church not as a force for the liberation of people, of allowing people to be who they are, but as a force for preventing people from being who they really are. Thou shalt not follow your desires. And the priest in black gowns who walk their rounds bind with briars my joys and desires. All of this is to say that in the 19th century we get a very, very strong emergence of the idea that for human beings to be happy is for them to follow their inner impulses. And any curbing of those inner impulses renders human beings to be somewhat less than they really are or should be. And this brings me then to the next great figure. The big question then becomes, how does this become so sexual? On one level, you've got Wordsworth, yeah, let's follow our passions. But we live in a world where following your passions means what? expressing yourself sexually in any way you so desire. I was struck last week at Grove City, the, uh, you know, as the new guy, you always get asked to do the job that none of the experienced people will do because they know what it entails. And I had a student turn up and uh, say to me, Dr. Truman, would you be willing to, uh, to MC the, the faculty talent show for the students? And immediately I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is the, this is the job that none of the, the older guys do. I said, sure, I'll do it. And, and I, I thought, I'm trying to think, what kind of sort of, Jokes can I pull? So I thought I'd do uh, demonstrate. Uh, I, I asked the question as I started emceeing. I said, the American Revolution, or as I call it, the, uh, the illegal colonial rebellion. Uh, was it a good thing or a bad thing? And I said, Let's, we, we can easily answer that question by looking at the fate of poetry before the revolution and after the revolution. I said, this was a typical English poem before the revolution. And I read them uh, uh, Ben Jonson's To Celia. Uh, you may know the first line, drink to me only with thine eyes. It's a beautiful poem, uh, made even more beautiful when it's read by somebody like me with a beautiful English accent. Uh, and I said, well, that's poetry before the revolution. 
Let's look at poetry after the revolution. And I then uh, read uh, uh, from that great modern American poet, Lady Gaga. Uh, I read her <laughs> poker face. And even my beautiful English accent was not able to, to uh, redeem uh, the poem for its complete lack of any merit whatsoever. Uh, but the point of this story is I spent the afternoon, I, thought, I decided this was what I was going to do, so I was going to spend the afternoon uh, pulling up lyrics of uh, pop songs that I thought teenagers might listen to uh, in order to, to do this funny recitation. I had to go back to 2008 and then miss out a verse to find a pop song by a female pop artist who's cool and trendy among uh, teenage kids that I felt I could with good conscience read before that audience. I was horrified, absolutely horrified, at the sexually explicit nature of the lyrics. Uh, I mean, I'm just old enough, I'm a big Rolling Stones guy, and I'm not quite old enough, but I've certainly, uh, I know the story that the Rolling Stones were banned from the BBC because Mick Jagger wrote a song and sang it, Let's Spend the Night Together, that they had to change to Let's Spend Some Time Together uh, before they performed it on, on British television. That is so mild compared to the, frankly, pornographic explicitness of lyrics sung by people like Ariana Grande that mums, or as you would say moms, I think, mums, are taking their 12- and 13-year-old girls to listen to in concerts. And I want to suggest that that indicates more than anything else that, that the Wordsworthian vision of uh, inner being, being a primarily, uh, being a, a, a center of authenticity, has been profoundly sexualized. Profoundly sexualized. The sexual revolution, if you like, involves the sexualization of that 19th century psychological turn. Well, why has it become so sexual? I think here, Sigmund Freud is the man. Freud is interesting because he's actually a very conservative figure in many ways. He thinks sexual repression is a good thing because it prevents chaos and it leads to great works of art. But Freud is the man more than anybody else who comes to identify happiness, which Wordsworth sees as being achieved by being authentic and at one with your inner feelings, Freud identifies happiness with sexuality. I'll give you a quotation here from his famous essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. Man's discovery that sexual, that is genital love, afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations, and that he should make genital erotism, genital pleasure, the central point of his life. That's Freud writing in the 1930s. What's interesting about that is, I have to say this to students, an idea doesn't have to be true for it to come to grip the imagination. It simply has to appeal. And I'm not sure that Freud is entirely correct in his analysis of what I would say is fallen human nature there. He would not have that category. But certainly that idea that happiness is to be found primarily in personal sexual satisfaction has come to grip the popular imagination. It's a little simplistic, but one might put it this way. Before Freud, sex was something you did. After Freud... 
Sex is something you are. By combining that psychological emphasis of the romantics and company with sex, Freud makes sex into identity. I did classics at university. Uh, we, we looked at Greek homosexuality. I remember being uh, stunned one day in a seminar when I was translating uh, a Greek poem, and suddenly I realized it was a Greek poem written by a woman. It was a love poem to another woman. The interesting thing about Greek society is that, typically speaking, Greeks did not think of themselves in terms of their sexuality. They engaged in homosexual practice, but they didn't typically think of themselves as homosexuals. They didn't have their sexual orientation idea determining who they are, we might say. Freud also does another interesting thing, this is a critical thing, in that he raises an interesting question about why things are considered to be immoral, which has again come to grip the popular imagination. It's one of my favorite uh, paragraphs from Freud. It's from his three lectures on sexuality. He says this, those who condemn other sexual practices, these are what we would, you know, perversions, non-heterosexual sex, uh, which have no doubt been common among mankind from primeval times as being perversions, are giving way to an unmistakable feeling of disgust, which protects them from accepting sexual aims of the kind. The limits of such disgust are, however, often purely conventional. And then he goes on to uh, use an example that, that always amuses the students when I throw it out in class. A man who will kiss a pretty girl's lips passionately may perhaps be disgusted at the idea of using her toothbrush. Though there are no grounds for supposing that his own oral cavity, for which he feels no disgust, is any cleaner than the girl's. Here then our attention is drawn to the factor of disgust, which interferes with the libidinal overvaluation of the sexual object, but can in turn be overridden by libido. Disgust seems to be one of the forces which have led to restriction of the sexual aim. Translate that into common English. What is he saying there? Freud's saying, you know, sexual morality, it all comes down to taste. There's no rational basis for it whatsoever. And again, I would say that's an idea that has come to grip the popular imagination. Think of how much of our moral language today is actually not language of right or wrong, true or false, but language of offensive or not offensive, disgusting or not disgusting. I would also add there that Freud sounds a warning, just as an aside, a, a warning to Christians to be very careful how we articulate our moral views that we don't fall prey to what I would call the gag reflex. Remember a few years ago, it was on the Gospel Coalition website, a very well-respected and well-known uh, African-American Baptist pastor wrote an article on homosexuality, and I think it was entitled something like The Yuck Factor. And the burden of the argument was homosexuality is wrong because it's disgusting. And I did something that I think I've never done before or never done since. I actually wrote an article responding to him and criticizing him because I didn't feel that he actually set the Christian case against homosexuality on a particular safe footing. And I made a comment to him, I know people who think French kissing is disgusting. Does it make it immoral or wrong? So that's just an aside that when we as Christians engage these issues, let us make sure that the language we use is not the language of the gag reflex, but is actually the language of right or wrong. So Freud then develops this idea 
that human beings are fundamentally sexual. And when you combine that with our inner desires, our inner psychological man, then that makes our identities fundamentally sexual. And that's where the history of the politics of all this becomes interesting. In the mid-1930s, Freud is picked up on by a number of very left-wing thinkers who come to identify oppression in psychological terms. It's like the final stage, if you like, setting the stage for the sexual revolution. Again, go back to my grandfather. If I would say to my grandfather, Grandad, uh, what does oppression mean to you? I think my granddad, he was a union man all his life, I think he'd have said, uh, it means not getting a fair day's work, a fair day's pay for a hard day's work. It means not being able to work. It means walking down the street, looking for a job as he did at points in the Great Depression, knowing there were no jobs to be found. Notice how he thinks of oppression very much in terms of economic terms. Well, what happens in the middle of the 20th century is this. All of that psychological stuff that I've been talking about comes to pervade the language of politics. Politics today is not predicated on economic oppression so much as it is predicated on psychological oppression. I'm going to talk about this a bit more tomorrow. But in the mid-1930s, Freud is picked up on by a bunch of left-wing thinkers who say, you know... For human beings to be truly liberated, we have to break free of this oppressive middle-class morality that squeezes us into its mold, picks up on the Wordsworth Blake stuff, if you like, and politicizes it. To show you how dramatic this is, uh, form this takes, I'll quote here from a book entitled The Sexual Revolution, written by Wilhelm Reich, a man who actually died in prison as a con artist in uh, Pennsylvania in the 1950s. But Reich wrote this book, The Sexual Revolution, in the 1930s, which again, like uh, Reef's book, was probably more prophetic than he could ever have known. He says this, The free society will provide ample room and security for the gratification of natural needs. Thus, it will not only prohibit a love relation, uh, not only not prohibit a love relationship between two adolescents of the opposite sex, but will give it all manner of social support. Such a society will not only not prohibit the child's sexual activity, but on the contrary, will probably conclude that any adult who hinders the development of the child's sexuality should be severely dealt with. Isn't that prophetic? Sex education is probably the most potent political force in society today. Some years ago, uh, the, I was living in uh, Philadelphia, near Philadelphia at the time, and the school district where my boys, both in the public schools, or had been in the public schools, they'd graduated, um, uh, brought forward the first transgender bathroom policy in the state. Uh, and as is typical, this is, a, you know, it's just, this is a pretty leafy, white, middle-class suburb. It's not kind of a hotbed of radicalism, you would think. And a, a, a local uh, a Roman Catholic lawyer contacted me uh, and asked if I would uh, work on a letter with him to the school board. Uh, it happened that his wife was connected to the school, so his name couldn't appear on it because it would have jeopardized her position. 
But I agreed to be the, the front man for this. And it was a very mild letter. I, I put it up on the web uh, in the end. I published it over at First Things. It was a mild letter. And the thing we zeroed in on was uh, a statement in the policy that if a child came out as transgender at school, the school was not obliged to tell the parents. And the argument we made in this letter was, what the school is essentially saying there is that the school has more rights to know who the child is than the parents do. That's how powerful this stuff is. What was disturbing was, I don't do Facebook, but there was a young couple uh, that I knew, Christian couple, who were uh, Facebook people and their kids were involved in, in the schools. And I, I got them to post the letter on their Facebook page to see if we could drum up any local support. Nobody. Nobody supported them on their Facebook page. Nobody could even see the point of the argument we were making. And I felt we made it fairly clearly. A few came up to them at a barbecue, apparently, and expressed private support, but they were frightened to express public support on a Facebook page. I actually sent the letter to the local newspaper. I thought, you know, maybe I could provoke them to persecute me as a result. You know, maybe I could get a sort of uh, hit piece done on me. In the, lo the local paper wouldn't touch it. Didn't want to touch it. The sexualizing of identity, the sexualizing of psychology, and the politicizing of sexuality is the hallmark of this modern age. And it's so powerful... Because what grips us all, Christian and non-Christian alike, I think, is the idea that who we are is who we think we are in here. Who we think we are in here. And I'm going to address more of that tomorrow. Think of the forces that, uh, that press this way. Uh, you might say, well, I'm not, I, I, you know, I, I'm not vulnerable to this. Every commercial you ever watch presses on you that you're a psychological man or woman. There's a lot of uh, pastoral concern about the, the role of internet pornography today, and that's uh, right and appropriate. I think it's lethal. But there's a sense in which pornography is the easy enemy to spot. I could be sitting at home, and I look out my window, and I see a man with a chainsaw wearing a hockey ski mask coming down the, the road with a blood-dripping chainsaw moving towards my house. My instinct is to phone the police because I see there's a problem. I could sit in that same house waiting for the police to arrive and die from carbon monoxide poisoning that's odorless and I never realize it's there. I wonder if some of the most dangerous forces in society today are actually the ones that we don't spot. Think about what the average commercial tells you. The average commercial plays on the idea that your psychological satisfaction is the most important thing. You can actually see this in the history of commercials. You look at uh, early automobile commercials, and they're based on the idea of, buy this car and you will get from A to B faster. At some point, they shift from, buy this car and you will pull the most beautiful women imaginable. Advertising becomes advertising of the fulfillment of desire not the fulfillment of practicality. Every commercial you watch, every sitcom you watch, every soap opera you watch, every movie you watch, is an extended commercial for the idea that the meaning of human life is to be found in personal, 
psychological satisfaction. And that is, I would say, the, the metaphysical foundation of the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution just happens to be a particular manifestation of that underlying understanding of what it means to be a human being. So, to conclude then today, just to, 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 to sort of try to summarize, what I want to say is the first thing we need to know about what it means to be a human being today is that being a human being is all about our psychological states and our psychological satisfactions. And that the sexual revolution is the result of a certain sexualizing of psychology coming to grip the popular imagination and being sold to us by everything from commercials to Hollywood. The hashtag MeToo movement, just to end, I think it's brought a lot of good in its wake. I was saying to students this week, a student asked me, you know, is there anything better about the modern age than, than 30 years ago? And I said, well, sure. We take sexual assault a lot more seriously now. We do. I hope that a woman who's sexually assaulted or raped can now go to the police and expect to be treated more seriously than she would have been 30 years ago. And I think that's a good thing. The irony of the hashtag MeToo, however, is this. That the poster children of it, the people who've been most self-righteous about it, are those who've acted in movies that have pushed the idea that sex is nothing but casual recreation. It's nothing but getting a bit of personal satisfaction. That rests on this highly psychologized notion of what it means to be a human being. The wider context of that, wider society intensifies and gives us nothing to grab hold of to counter that will be the substance of my lecture tomorrow. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.